Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Today I'll be chatting with Dr. Maya Adam, a medical doctor, educator, mother, and much more. Dr. Maya Adam is currently the Director of Health Education Outreach at Stanford University, where she's also a member of the Faculty of Medicine. We'll be talking about the work that she's doing to reach people around the world across cultures, languages, and access barriers with vital health education messages. Her recent viral video about COVID prevention is a prime example. She and I also share a love of home cooking with family and kids, and we'll be swapping tips on making this a reality in our kitchens. Let's dig in. Dr. Maya Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I know you have a lot of balls that you're juggling right now, so this time is really appreciated. Great to be here. Thanks, Jenna. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you are very passionate about um, what you call evidence-based health entertainment. So I'd love to talk about that today. And then um, in addition, we have a shared passion for home cooking, particularly with kids. So we'll touch on that um, as part of the story to how you got to where you are now. So can you tell us what do you mean by that term? And, um, and how did this sort of come to be? So I've spent the last um, seven or eight years trying to find ways in which to create video-based health education content that really will engage a broad audience around the world. And what I found over the years in trying different styles is that if we don't engage our audience, if we don't get them to stay in their seats, then we have no chance of conveying even the best, you know, messages that are based on real science. They don't do any good if they're presented in a way that's dry or boring, or if people just choose not to watch them. So I think, you know, by leaning on some of the approaches that the entertainment industry uses, we can really take our important health messages and deliver them in a way that engages the public, that keeps them in their seat, that keeps them watching, and that encourages them to share what they're learning with others. And ideally, that's really what we want when we're trying to spread health messages. So I know that, you know, this, the reason that you came on my radar again was because of the, the Stanford video on COVID. So can you tell the story of that video? And, and, and how do you, I guess, how do you measure your success? And what, what are some of the numbers and, and the reach? And how do you quantify all this? Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, just after the shelter in place was imposed in California, I was asked to create a video for the Stanford School of Medicine, a video that could go viral and that could go around the world without any adaptation. Obviously, speed was of the essence and we needed to get important basic health messages around social distancing, hand washing, um, not touching your nose and your eyes, those sorts of simple messages, we needed to package them in a way that could very quickly go out to the general public. And so I was given the task of basically getting creative and thinking up a way that we could put together a message that would be so compelling that people would share it via social media. Mm -hmm. I think we all sort of watched in horror 
as the social media platforms filled up with huge numbers of, of myths and misinformation and the evidence-based health agencies, the, the trusted voices in health, needed to react quickly. So I was asked to basically move as quickly as possible and I worked with um, a South African animator who very quickly, you know, got creative and started drawing up characters. I came up with a storyline that I thought would bring the messages to life mm -hmm. through narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and we did it without any words. We just used a soundtrack with sound effects. Mm -hmm. And we used some pretty classical kind of cartoon animation techniques, like you might have seen growing up if you watched cartoons when you were little. And that video ended up going quite viral. By day 10, we were at 1.2 million views on just the Stanford social media channels. Um, in addition to that, we had requests from health agencies and media outlets in six global regions, including the World Health Organization in Sri Lanka, the US Air Force, the Paraguayan government, um, Ministry of Education and Health, and just a whole bunch of different places, even members of the um, deaf and hard of hearing community reached out mm -hmm. to us and asked if they could share the content mm -hmm. because it wasn't based on spoken word. Mm -hmm. And so it was really unexpected. And I think what was most unexpected was the simplicity of what we were putting out there and the reach that it ended up having. I love the video. I actually, one of the things that I love most, I wasn't thinking about it through the cross-cultural lens. I was thinking about it through the mechanistic lens because it provides such a nice visual of what's happening. And especially now that people have to tailor their behaviors and make decisions about what's low risk, what's high risk. It, you, it's to have a mental model of what's happening is, is so powerful. So you didn't anticipate in advance that there was such a big gap. I'm curious, like, why are there not others? Who else is doing this? And, you know, why is there such a gap? And you know, what is sort of the status quo? You know, Chana, that is such a great question. And I thought about that a lot because I've often wondered why do we make things so complicated mm -hmm. that they end mm -hmm. up not reaching the people we're trying to reach? Mm -hmm. And I think at the heart of it is sort of um, a fear sometimes, certainly among academics. We need to feel when we're teaching other people that we're justifying our role as the teacher. And so mm. often we end up presenting what we know rather than what our audience needs to know mm. for mm. fear of being seen as unacademic or as not knowing our stuff, you know, not really deserving mm. to be in the position of, of taking that teaching role. So I mm. think one of the mm. most powerful lessons I've learned is that we educators, especially during a pandemic or whenever there is a critical need for health information, we have to take our egos out of the equation and just mm -hmm. think about what our audiences need to know and take a very human-centered design approach where we put ourselves in the position of the viewer and say, what would engage me? What would cause me to hit play and not to hit pause or not mm -hmm. to close this video on my device or on mm -hmm. my screen that I'm watching it on. Yeah. And so I think, you know, if we take that approach, we really have quite a bit more chance of making an impact on health outcomes than we would if we went the more traditional didactic route. Yeah. 
No, you're right. I mean, even a lot of the communications I've seen, you know, here's a great, you know, COVID explainer for kids. It gives a lot more detail than is needed. They show the virus particle in great detail and spike proteins. And yours is more of just the orange blob, right? That's kind of spreading around. And part of that was, you know, we were a very small team. It was an animator and myself and one person that helped with the sound effects. Um, so we, we did have to go quite simple. We also wanted to get it done quickly. And the mm -hmm. first draft of that video was ready in about a week, which is pretty impressive for um, animators these days. So it was definitely bare bones, very simple. But I think sometimes simple is, is more effective. So I you know, sort of morphed myself from a scientist to a science communicator, and I'm really learning as I go about how to reach people. And one of the things that I find challenging is that often those that are the least evidence-based, um, you know, are so confident and so charismatic, and you know, there's this 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 noise that's that you're sort of fighting against. And those that are very science-based, you know, it can sound very humdrum and boring, and people want to tune it out. And so I'm just wondering how you sort of um, you know, what advice you would have for those like myself um, who are trying to, you know, be evidence-based resources, whether it's just I'm providing advice from the research I've done on a, on a perspective or whether I'm trying to advocate for, you know, you should be looking at WHO, not at uh, whatever, your, your aunt who has a random opinion. Um, so what, what advice do you have for those who are, you know, play a role in education just, you know, independently? Yeah. I mean, I think... Obviously, knowing your facts, the stronger your evidence base and the stronger your understanding of the recommendations that you're trying to convey, the better. But then I think taking yourself back to the first time you learned something, that is such a powerful approach. Often, mm -hmm. even when I'm putting together a course, I go back and I try and remember the first time I learned about a concept. And I think to myself, how did I picture that? Or how did I understand that? And, and how did my learning progress? And then mm -hmm. if you sort of recreate that learning journey for the people mm -hmm. you're trying to teach, that can be really powerful. And, mm -hmm. and then I think also just, again, taking your own need to show what you know. We're all excited about what we yeah. know. And it's very tempting to explain far more than your listener wants to hear or needs yeah. to hear and i think that resisting that temptation and just thinking what would be the most impactful thing for me to explain right now i think that's important yeah so maya what would you say are some of the specific gaps that you hope to reach i mean do you have an impression of who specifically is not being reached very well by the current you know evidence-based recommendations so i would say you know there, there are certainly large populations that are underserved in our world. Um, there are people who face literacy barriers are often underserved. Um, people who speak languages that are not often represented in health messaging are at a disadvantage. Even young, healthy people who just tend not to think that health messaging is important for them because they're young and healthy. These are all populations that we can potentially reach if we just add a little bit of creativity and a little bit of 
um, I want to I sort of say an element of drama to our messaging mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, what we all share is a fascination for seeing something that moves us and seeing something that touches us or makes mm -hmm. us laugh or makes us feel something. Mm -hmm. And if we can frame our important health messages in ways that move people, make them laugh, make them become more engaged with the messaging, then we have a powerful tool for reaching those marginalized populations. Yeah, so I, I don't have as much familiarity with the outside of North America data. Certainly it makes sense what you're saying about people who don't have um, access to obviously the literacy resources. Um, but even within North America, I certainly have heard conversations and people making the very good point that a lot of the young people don't even follow the mainstream news. And so you need to be on social media to reach those groups. Absolutely. So how does one go about doing an online trial? So with online trials, what we do is we recruit a large number of participants and the data collection is entirely online. So there's no face-to-face -face, uh, interaction, which is problematic during a pandemic. And then basically you take that sample of participants and they get randomized into either a control or an intervention group. And then you just vary the order of exposure to the intervention, for example, a short video. And you ask those participants questions about their ideas, their attitudes, their behavioral intentions and their knowledge. And some get to see the video before they answer those questions and the other group answers the questions and then sees the video. Mm. And then the entire sample gets to see the video at some point. So everyone gets the benefit of the intervention, mm -hmm. but we just ask the questions earlier in, in one case than in the other. And if we then see differences, if the, the sample size is large enough, then we can learn something about what the impact was or what we think the impact might be of that kind of health messaging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine you need a pretty large sample because there's so much diversity in what people know just going into there. That's right. And so we're working with numbers 20,000 and up. Mm. So they are nice large samples. And mm -hmm. of course, we always look at the demographics and make sure that you know they are similar across both of those groups, the, yeah. the control and the intervention. So Maya, moving on from health education, I'd love to talk about home cooking, another passion um, that you and I share. So can you tell me um, about your journey there and how you came to be so passionate about this topic? Absolutely. So my passion for home cooking actually led to my very first uh, experiment with massive open online learning. Um, and it was motivated by the fact that my son, my middle son at the age of three years old, was diagnosed with celiac disease. So we had to basically, at the time, I mean, this was nine years ago, we had to start preparing almost all of our food at home. At that young age, he was very sensitive even to small amounts of gluten in the food. And so we really couldn't go out to restaurants, we couldn't order in, you know, so we, we started buying simple fresh ingredients and cooking at home. And it was important to me that he didn't feel that he was sort of missing out or on a medical diet. I wanted to keep it light and celebratory. And what we found was that it became quite a bit of fun. And we felt that we had come together as a family around 
the stove and around the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And we also felt that we were eating better and enjoying our food more than we had previously when we were eating a lot of food from restaurants or or other convenience foods. Mm -hmm. And then we noticed Mm -hmm. that our health seemed to be improving as well in general for the entire family. And so that kind of really opened my eyes to the power of simple, healthful home cooking Mm -hmm. and how we can take control of our family's health through this simple act. Now, I'm sure that one of the number one questions you get about this is how on earth do you fit that into your schedule? You're a very busy woman, so how do you do it? I think the most important thing to achieve regular home cooking is to lower your expectations. I mean, none of the stuff that we cook during the week is fancy, multi-course, you know, only on special occasions will we have multiple courses or fancy dishes. Usually it's just very simple, healthful food. And I always say to people, if you can peel a carrot, you can cook. And if you can boil water, you can cook. Because even a meal like brown rice and beans with some sautéed onions or a carrot that's peeled and you boil some whole wheat pasta and put some cheese on top, those kinds of meals are more economical. They are much healthier than most restaurant or takeout foods. Mm. And at the end of the day, you know, you start to enjoy those foods more because they make you feel better. Um, I, I remember from your cooking, your, your course that you did at Stanford, um, Child Nutrition and Cooking, you talked about, I can't remember the number, was it four sort of basic um, elements of a, of a meal or sort of the four pillars um, that, to creating a meal? Could you maybe walk through those? Because I think it's a really nice way to think about building a meal. This is absolutely not evidence-based, but this is my personal philosophy <laughs> on how I agree with it too. So, so that there <laughs> must be right. So I believe that if you, and I've heard this from other you know, much more professional cooks than myself, if you sort of tickle all of the receptors Mm -hmm. on the tongue, if Mm -hmm. when you're cooking a savory dish, if it's got a little bit of lemon to touch the sour receptors Mm -hmm. and a little Mm -hmm. bit of, you know, natural sweetness from Mm -hmm. a a vegetable like carrots or sweet potatoes, Mm -hmm. if it has a bit Mm -hmm. of salt and a little bit of bitterness maybe from a, a, a vegetable like broccoli, and if you can sort of touch as many receptors Mm. as possible on the tongue, you actually get a really nice experience. My Mm -hmm. kids like to call it, it's a party in my mouth. That's what they say when (laughs) I get, I get that right in a meal. I totally agree that, um, tickling the different elements of taste. I sort of think about that as I try to create a meal. I also do a lot of trying to reduce meat and dairy in creative ways. And so I'm often thinking about, well, if I'm gonna try to replicate cheese, well, what is cheese? Cheese is kind of creamy and there's a lot of fat and there's also a lot of salt. So I need, if I'm gonna try and substitute that, I need something that has a sort of a creamy mouthfeel and I need a little, I need some saltiness to it. So I, I think about that and I, and I, and when I, when I, I often, I actually come back to thinking about your course and how those are really the elements and different ratios of them, you know, just happen to light up our tongues in interesting ways. Lovely. It's lovely. And I think having that playful, experimental attitude when you go in the kitchen is absolutely the way to keep it sustainable Mm because you can only follow a recipe to a T for so long. Mm -hmm. And I add off to people who do that because I'm much more of a crazy scientist in the kitchen where I throw things together and 
I, it's rare that I can recreate the exact same meal twice because I, I don't usually, it's not a, a science for me as much as yeah. an art. Yeah. But I do think that there are also so many traditional combinations that are com combined for a reason. If mm -hmm. you think about beans and rice or lentils and rice, those are not only they do they taste good together, but they're also they make sense nutritionally because mm -hmm. the, the nutrients complement each other. I was yeah, the other one that is also a nice functional pair is the citrus and legumes because of the iron absorption. I've I've been thinking about about that with my kids who mostly plant based that I always trying to add citrus to my um, iron sources. But that Makes happens sense, all the time right? in, in cultural dishes. Yeah. And since we're in the middle of this COVID pandemic, I know a lot of people are cooking at home more. So I wonder um, what would be some advice for sort of beginners who are, you know, doing some of this for the first time. Um, I'm also just curious about, again, any advice for, again, creative substitutions or, or what to do, you know, when you're faced with um, less than ideal, you know, conditions for cooking without access yeah. to all the ingredients you might normally have. So that's where I think flexibility is key and being able to understand certain principles. Mm -hmm. If it's a savory dish, for me, it almost always starts with sauteing onions. Mm -hmm. And if you saute onions in some olive oil and you add a little salt and some pepper, any other spices that you like, you can add almost any vegetable to that base and you will have something with good flavor. Then mm -hmm. from there, you can go in any direction. If you have a bit of soy sauce, you're going in towards an Asian kind of flavor for that evening. If you're adding cumin seeds and coriander, it's gonna taste a little bit more Indian. And you basically mm -hmm. play around with whatever you have available and, and just sort of be fearless. I think that's the best way mm -hmm. to get started. Mm -hmm. Practice makes perfect, and that's true in the kitchen as well. The more we try yeah. things out, the more confident we'll be, and the more fun we'll have with it. And then mm -hmm. you start to see, you know, the family coming down or, you know, whoever you're, you happen to be sheltering in place with will say, hey, that smells really good. Can you, mm -hmm. what is that? Can I try some? Or did you make that? And then you get this kind of positive feedback loop where you want to get even better at what you do. And it's just, it's a really a recipe for success. One of the things that I try and do when is to minimize the frustration side of it is if I'm cooking something new that I think the kids might not be keen on, I try and sort of have something set aside, the sort of the plain rice. I'm going to let them sort of, if they don't like whatever mixed veggie curry thing I made, I want to make sure there's something on the side so that the whole, everyone's not hungry and cranky if they don't love whatever I'm experimenting with that night. Yeah. I mean, somebody once said to me, and I think it's very good advice, it's our job to provide the children with healthful options, and it's their job to decide how much they eat and which of those healthful options they mm -hmm. choose. So I agree. I think options are important. I don't really believe in tailoring mm -hmm. the meal, and I know that's not what you were describing, but I, I have heard some parents say that they're cooking three different meals right. for three different right eaters and I, yeah. I don't think that that's a sustainable way to, to do it and yeah. it also in some ways it brings a family together when they sort of learn to like the same foods mm -hmm. and they're all look you're all looking forward to the same thing it's kind yeah. of like watching a movie together versus all watching your own thing on a separate screen yeah 
That's funny. You're making me think of something my mom always did to try and entice us to eat a certain food. Your uncle Jim loves artichokes or whatever. She'd always like try and entice us with someone else who likes it. And, um, it seems silly at the time, but I find myself doing it on the kids and it kind of works sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. And what she was doing, she was launching a counter marketing campaign because we <laughs> victims of so much successful marketing, food marketing, of the unhealthy stuff, that we as parents have a job to sell in some ways what yeah. we're cooking. If we just say, I made broccoli, versus if we say to them, I made the most delicious broccoli with sesame seeds yeah. and olive oil, and it's just divine. And by the way, your favorite uncle, this used to be his favorite recipe when he was a kid. He used to eat a whole bowl full of this. That is counter-marketing, mm. right? So mm. I love that approach. Mm -hmm. Actually, I, when I spoke with Dr. Gardner recently, I, I love his some of his work he did in um, experimenting with labeling foods in, in college cafeterias. And that starts exactly what you're saying. If you call it just carrots or fiber-rich carrots. Nobody wants them, but if you call them citrus-glazed carrots, it's a very different story. I really have to catch myself on that. It's, it's, it's so counterproductive to sort of push the health angle sometimes. And Shana, another trick that's worth mentioning, if you can catch their hunger, so whenever we're hungry, you know, if you can put out, let's say, I often do this, I put out a bowl of stir-fried veggies first mm -hmm. and I say to them yeah that you know the the chicken and the rice is coming it's almost done they will most likely eat more of those vegetables than they would if you put out everything at once yeah so that's another trick yeah I'm big on the timing as well I usually try to have a sort of veggie platter while I'm cooking or finishing things off because they're inevitably hungry before things are ready I guess you're you know in in closing since we talked about so much today your your top tip for um, you know for the home cooking environment first to you know especially for a newcomer what are what would you recommend the one sort of state of mind or 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 thing to try as you're just getting started so top tip for cooking at home I would mm. be would say is have a good attitude try and buy ingredients if you have access to them that are mm. local and fresh and then combine them in ways that you think will be pleasant to eat. Never mm. eat something because you think it will be good for you or because somebody told you to make it that way. Always listen to your instinct and try and cook with a bit of love. I know it sounds mm. corny, mm -hmm. but I think people can taste it when you've enjoyed the process of cooking a meal. Mm -hmm. And coming back to the health education where we started, um, what would you say, how can, you know, people in the general public um, do their part to, you know, to spread information, um, you know, credible information? How could we contribute to this balance of noise versus, um, you know, val valuable information? Yeah. So I think being a critical consumer of health information is important. Definitely checking where the information is coming from. Is this a credible source? Is this the World Health Organization or, you know, a, a respected science-based source of information? And then helping to spread that information within your communities mm -hmm. is probably one of the most powerful things you can do to get the right messages to be mm -hmm. amplified. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of the misinformation does a pretty good job of, of creating viral messaging a lot of the time. So 
um, people like you and I need to fight back with a, with equally viral messages, right? Right. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. It's, it's so important um, on so many levels. And thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Okay. Take care, Maya. Thanks, Chana. Take Bye. care. Bye.